Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we try to unpack the history of retirement in America. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed. And please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Good to see you, buddy. Good to see you. And since last recording, I found a uh, money-saving tip that I can implement in my own life to save potentially tens or even maybe $100 a year. Are you telling me, Dan, that us recording a show, trying to help people with their finances in a circular fashion has now helped you? Are you being more thoughtful about saving money? I think the answer is yes. At least I was more open to, to looking for opportunities. And this happened when I was ordering a book off of Amazon the other day. Normally, log in, search for the book I want. It pops up all nice and beautiful in my face. Click the button and it's here maybe today. For some reason this time, I scroll down a little bit and I've always known there are other sellers on the Amazon platform, but just haven't used them because it's annoying. You have to pay for extra shipping. You don't know when the book's going to arrive. And for years, I haven't looked down there until this past week when I figured I'd click in and see what they're offering. And the other sellers plus shipping often offer cheaper alternatives than the one that Amazon puts so beautifully in front of my face. And for the first time since I don't remember when, I purchased from one of them and uh, saved myself three whole dollars. Thank you very much. Don't spend it all in one place. I will not. And I feel good because I'm sure some of that is going to Amazon, of course, but at least it is also supporting probably another small business instead of just the the Amazon giant. Yeah. I like that. I, you know, I tend to get a little bit of savings when I bundle orders. And when I originally purchased Prime, which I think was probably like 2012, 2014 timeframe, I'm not sure exactly when Prime was introduced, but I, I feel like I was early to it. I remember thinking, if I'm paying for this benefit, I'm going to ship as much junk to my house as I possibly can. Any item, no matter how small, I'm just going to smash the buy button and make them send it to me. I have since kind of walked that back because of the environmental impact and just the complete unnecessity of having somebody walk up, you know, a pack of gum to <laughs> me for like two bucks just because I have free shipping available to me. Now I try and kind of be a little bit more thoughtful, bundle orders together and um, not be super silly about what I buy. But anyway, I felt the the very same about you know getting like a digital credit because now you can basically bundle orders into your Amazon Prime Day and things like that and get credit back um, if you're willing to to wait a little bit. So there are some ways to save money, even if you're shopping just with that one particular retailer. Talking about this reminds me of probably the funniest delivery I ever received from an online order. You and I have talked about this place before. Sweetwater uh, does music equipment and supplies and whatever. All of our podcast stuff came from them. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Sweetwater. I was looking for a very particular guitar pick that I love playing with, and I couldn't find one locally. I hang out at music stores all the time. They just didn't have them. Sweetwater did. So I ordered this $2 pack of guitar picks, which is the smallest thing you can imagine shipping. 
So I got it delivered to me. They also include with every delivery, like a little bag of candies and treats. So I had this tiny package mailed to my house, which I'm sure cost money and all the gas and effort that went along with it and a bag of candy. Like they lost so much money on that order, but do have a client for life. Yeah. No, I, I, I like dealing with them as well. And I think that's a fun little gimmicky sales thing, right? Like I think a lot of people in the musician and pro audio world that have done business with them, they are known for sending those little packs of candy. It's like a funny hallmark and it's not incredible candy. I don't think I ever even eat it. It's like Tootsie Rolls and stuff, but uh, it's a it's a fun calling card for them. I'll take your Tootsie Rolls. There you go. I'll, I'll bring them to you next time. So... In response to one of our recent episodes, we got an email from a listener, and that kind of kicked off our thought process on today's episode. So this came to us from Mary Beth, and she says that in our January 11th episode, we mentioned that retirement planning was a relatively new field and that people didn't think about it much before that. She says the history behind it is that people used to work for the same company for many years and companies had pensions for their retirees. So Mary Beth's view is one that I shared for a long time. I think that that is kind of the common thought process of what happened and what was going on with Americans. Morgan Housel debunks that a little bit in his book in the first chapter. And he talks about that really before World War II, most Americans worked until they died. That's like literally I'm, I'm reading paid word for word from his book. And that the expectation was really that you were just going to continue to work. The labor force participation rate was over 50% for men above age 65 until the 1940s. So that just got me thinking that there's a history here that we could probably unpack a little bit. And we found this incredible piece of writing, and it's a few years old now. Uh, It's actually 10 years old. But this is from uh, Georgetown Law. And it is a timeline of the evolution of retirement in the United States. So we're going to post this in our notes for this show. So if you're interested in reading this, um, I think it's really interesting. It goes back as far as 1875 when American Express establishes the first private pension. But we're going to cherry pick a few of the dates on here and talk about kind of how we view some of this evolution and what's happened in the history of retirement in the United States. Yeah. And we're when we're talking about kind of the establishment of social security and the first earliest private pensions, let's also remember life expectancy was nothing. So when, when Ross mentions people working over age 65 at, at a rate of over 50%, life expectancy was actually under age 65. So the expectation the day you were born was you weren't even going to open your eyes at age 65 because You'd be in the dirt somewhere. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting spot to jump in. And there, there's a few data points before this for sure. But Social Security was enacted in 1935. And they established at that time the age 65 as the normal retirement age, which is when you'd start collecting Social Security. And the 1935 life expectancy was 60 years at birth, right? So, so literally, they were establishing this kind of expecting you not to need it. The The original genesis of Social Security was not how it gets used today, where, quite frankly, for many people that have been high-income earners, we're looking at collecting hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not into the millions over your lifetime, 
just in terms of what you'll collect from Social Security based on current life expectancies. That was not how it was set up to work. Uh, they were expecting that you might never file. Right. And even if you made it to age 65, the average life expectancy from that point was only 12 years. Yeah. So that that was not a particularly heavy-duty system originally. Here's two other things that I thought were were fascinating. The one is an aside, and and I think it's just for how much tax talk dominates our minds as financial planners and tax strategy. In 1939, 6% of Americans paid income taxes. That's an unbelievable number. I, I couldn't believe it when I saw that. So I had to go back to the old tax rates of 1939 just to see what they were. The rates weren't crazy. So if you made up to $4,000 of income, you were paying a 4% tax rate, which you know seems modest, 8% from 4,000 to 6,000. So I was trying to figure out how nobody paid income taxes and then went to the census to see what average families were earning. Uh, and it was a lot less than that on average. And you also got a little bit of a personal uh, exemption on top of that. So you're right. This was not a problem for most people. Taxes was not a factor, at least on the federal level. So this is where I thought it gets interesting. So 1940, uh, there are 4.1 million private sector workers. So that's 15% of private sector workers are covered by a pension plan. And so I think that this, again, not to knock Mary Beth, because I think her understanding is exactly what mine used to be, 15% of private sector employees are, are being covered by a pension. And so that's still a very small percentage at that point that are having access to a pension and that that's really not a big piece of the retirement picture. And that's really when the first Social Security check is also being cashed which was not particularly meaningful at the time. No, it was like $22. Is that right? Yeah. I think it's like the equivalent of 400 bucks today, but it, it was not a lot. Yeah. Also relevant to the history of pensions, in 1942, in the middle of World War II, there was a Wage and Salary Act that froze wages in the attempt to contain wartime inflation. So with wages freezing, employers were looking for other ways to attract workers and one of those ways would have been to establish pensions and other fringe benefits that would keep people motivated and, and working for them. Moving right along, by 1945, 75% of the nation is now paying income taxes. So a big jump in the number of Americans that are being affected by taxes over that five-year period, which as we now know, I think Americans will do almost anything they can to avoid or reduce that tax burden and so the incentive for a pension and kind of the, um, I think the public pressure for that is likely growing because there's an element of, I don't necessarily want to make more than I need right now because now that money's being taxed, right? And so I think that that's how we think of a 401k today, which uh, had not even been invented yet, by the way, right? But Right now, the way we think about it is if I can defer some income and defer the taxes on that income to a spot when I'm going to be in a lower tax bracket or a time when I will need the money when now I maybe don't, that that makes sense. And that same logic is being applied to pension income and where the employees are going to want the employer to simply put that revenue, right? Or where they're going to want to put that income. If you can shift that into the pension, that's going to make more sense if you're now paying taxes on that income dollar. 
That's right. But as of 1945, still not a lot you can do as an individual worker to control your tax scenario. More people are paying income taxes, but there are not many vehicles that you control individually to defer additional tax. So you are relying on your company to offer you some platform to be able to do that, the most common of which would have been a pension plan. So there's two dates on here that I thought were really interesting. 1956, the Social Security Act is passed. That allows women to elect early reduced benefits at 62, with full retirement benefits remaining available at 65. Again, that's just for women. And then in 1961, they amended it to allow men to elect early. That's fascinating to me that that happened in different years that men and women get access to retirement benefits as early as 62. But that is at a reduced rate, which is still how we do it today, that if you elect at 62, you're going to take a haircut on it. Yeah, I never knew those were introduced separately. That's fascinating. So all this time that we're talking about, the primary vehicle that we all now think of as being kind of the bedrock of retirement planning did not exist. Not until 1978 does the 401k plan get introduced, which allows pre-tax employee contributions. That's a really long period of time, honestly. That, And, and we can see the waves of the shifting. I think that's hopefully the message that you're getting of kind of why we wanted to go back and talk about some of this history here is that I think that the 401k was really introduced, number one, because we're seeing that life expectancy change, right? There's more need for workers to put that money away because through this time period we're talking about, we're going from when you were born in 1935, your life expectancy being 60. Now people are living longer, medicine is advancing, and really not that many folks really have access to the pension at this point. There are more private pensions out there uh, at probably in the 1978 timeframe than there are today. I think it has shifted more and more towards defined contribution plans, which is what the 401k is. But I don't necessarily get the sense that it was everybody had pensions. I think it was still a pretty select few and 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 probably a lucky few. Seeing the timeline laid out like this is is interesting because in 1974, we skipped over the ERISA Act, which actually um, limits the amount you can discriminate in your pension participation and also increases disclosure requirements. I wonder if that directly influenced the creation of something like a 401k, because now that you have less ability to discriminate, people wanted to add another incentive outside of pensions that they can offer people for saving because they maybe didn't want to provide pensions to certain classes of employees. Yeah, no, I think that that's a, that's a decent um, take as well. Yeah. And, and then from that point forward, there's a lot more movement in the history of retirement. We get a lot of different additions here, changes to ERISA, things that are modifying discrimination testing, all, all, all sorts of things. By 1996, only 8% of Americans work in physically demanding jobs. I thought that was a fascinating stat that called out to me. That's still two years before we introduced the Roth IRA, which was in 1998. And then until 2000, this is fascinating, Dan, until 2000, workers that earned an income were penalized by Social Security even after full retirement age. That's when we eliminated the penalty for earnings 
for individuals that worked until that normal retirement age, which at the time was 65. It's now moved up to 67. But continuing to work while collecting Social Security had a penalty associated with the income until that point. Wow. It really puts it in perspective. That's, I mean, not very long ago. Clearly, you and I weren't financial planning practitioners at that point, um, but very recent in the scheme of things. And I think that this history kind of dovetails with what I think of as the industry that we're in and how that has evolved, right? I mean, the early days of what we do really came out of just stockbrokers, right? You didn't have access to just log into your Schwab or Fidelity or TD Ameritrade account or whatever it is that you use to trade in today. At the time, you had to pick up the phone, you had to call your broker, and that's how you bought or sold anything was through a person that had access to these kind of very challenging systems to get access to that has very much been democratized and so i don't think that there's anybody today that i know of that is making a living simply as a facilitator of buying and selling stocks for a client i don't know a single person that just exists as a stock broker today where for many many years that was not only a profession that paid very well but one that was really needed has almost been eliminated, and the push has been towards people that can provide guidance and financial advice, which is how you and I view ourselves today. Yeah, and I really think that evolved when the 401k came about and people had more decisions to make as it relates to their retirement. So instead of just guiding people on the actual specifics of the investments they need to make, now you need to figure out where am I going to make these investments and how is that going to play out for me in the future? Well, yeah, and to the extent that there has been a shift from pensions to defined contribution plans, whether that be 403Bs, 457s, right? Any any of these plans that we're talking about, I kind of lump into that category. That puts the responsibility on the individual. And, you know, in some ways, that's a great thing because it means that you can see and be responsible for your own outcomes. You're not reliant on, you know, maybe a pension plan that's making super conservative choices or doesn't give you the increases that are tied to inflation that you might want, right? There's a lot of reasons that having that level of control might be preferable to having a pension, but the risk is all in your corner, right? And that that's the that's the real rub is that the cost of a mistake is expensive and the potential to make one is much higher uh, when you've got folks that historically haven't been trained in this, right? I think we still think there's a lack of financial literacy, a lack of financial education in the school system. And I think you're watching this industry evolve along with that to continue to provide hopefully better and better guidance. Um, you know, the, the CFP board wasn't even introduced until 1985. And the the board exam wasn't introduced until 1991. So, I mean, this thing that you know, we think of as the gold standard in our business for like, are you qualified to give good advice? Didn't even exist until those time periods as well. So that that to me really puts a nice uh, point on how new this industry still really is. New and ever changing. So even if you are informed and do try to keep up on things, like your information could very quickly be outdated. We passed a huge act at the end of last year that changed a lot of what we knew about retirement planning. So it's important that you have either a good source of information to keep up with or a financial planner who can help guide you through it. It certainly doesn't seem to me that it's getting more boring, Dan. I mean, the, the more and more we change laws towards this stuff, and I think most of them are intended to help 
Americans with their retirement, but they just never seem to simplify anything, right? It's always addition, addition, addition. It's never, we're going to like just simply clear the slate and make it, this is how it works. We just keep adding all of these little nuances and it makes it harder for people to find any of that information, right? Because it just means what you have to know has gotten so broad. Yeah, I know it would put you and me out of a job, but I would be so happy if they just started from scratch and put down like a couple pages of tax information and said, this is how it's going to be. You know, you can read this in three minutes and understand how it, how taxes are going to be for you. I mean, that yeah, that's the... But there's two massive industries that basically exist on complexity. I think ours is one in terms of financial planning. And whether the systems are, are complex or not, I do think there's some level of objective advice that that is helpful for people. I think just that bit of arm's length on not being as emotional about your own money, I think is always helpful and, and gives you a little bit of a different perspective. The second is exactly what you just said, which is taxes. I mean, that the number of folks that exist in that world uh, that are talented people and and need to exist because of how hard it is to navigate. It's just incredibly challenging to, to keep aware of all of it. Well, we're here for you until they figure that out. Yeah. Until, until that happens, this podcast will do our best. Uh, I won't say, I won't promise we're going to live forever as a podcast, but uh, we, we will continue to do our best to share what we think are the most relevant things with you. We hope that this, brief history lesson on the history of retirement in America has been somewhat helpful or interesting. Perked your ears up a little bit, but we appreciate the letter from Mary Beth or the email from Mary Beth. If you've got questions for us, check your balances at outlook.com is the email address for the show. Thanks everybody. We'll see you next week. 